Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Kate Ayers. We're at Pinner Ash Winery. It's April 21st, 2021. Kate, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, the first question to get started, and the most important question, is why wine? Yeah, that, that's a great question. <laughs> uh, I was raised on the northwest coast here in a little town called Gearhart, and I had grown up with chickens and dogs and geese and ducks and all sorts of animals. And I wanted to be a vet forever from the time I was three or four years old. That was my, my plan in life. I always, I'm going to be a vet. I'm going to be a vet. And uh, so my senior year of, junior year of high school, I guess, um, I applied to UC Davis, um, obviously for their vet program. I got in, which was super exciting for small town Oregon girl. Went to Davis, took my first quarter of classes, realized that the world can be pretty cruel out there and it turns out you can't save every animal you've ever wanted to save in life. Um, so I needed to shift gears. It was I was paying out of state tuition and I needed to either find a program that was right for me there or I needed to transfer back to Oregon and, and either Oregon State or University of Oregon and, and find something else, a different path. I, I knew that it was going to be something science related just because that has always interested me. Um, so I was looking through glasses and lo and behold, you could take winemaking. And I thought, well, that seems kind of interesting. I didn't come from a family that was, you know, they drank wine, but they weren't like sophisticated wine drinkers. Sorry, mom and dad. Um, and I was like, oh, this would be really interesting. And I sat in that class and I, it opened up the whole world. You learn about wine all over the world. And I was like, wow, this seems like, a really, really interesting path to take. And also this university is very, very good at it. <laughs> um, so I went down that rabbit hole. I, I got through my um, freshman and sophomore year, which of course was at that point, you know, you're just general chemistry, biology, all the basics. So I had the ability to transfer kind of anywhere I wanted to go. Um, and for my junior year, I thought I should take a quarter off and work my very first vintage before I did the whole four-year program. Um, so I worked for Cake Bread Cellars at that point in 2006. I totally fell in love with it. I worked with folks from all over the world, which was just like, again, this awesome experience of like how many places you can go in this industry. Um, and then I went back to Davis, I finished my degree, and that's kind of been the story. You know, I mean, it was, I just fell in love with it instantly. Tell me about the process for you of learning about wine, both the kind of formal education and also sort of the, in, the more informal education. Yeah, I think, um, you know, obviously I've never been to any other university's programs, but for me with Davis, I think it was really, really useful for me to take my quarter off my junior year before diving into winemaking classes um, and seeing what a functional winery looks like. That was, I, I think, very, very critical for my success moving forward through the program. Um, but Davis has a very hands-off approach isn't the right way to say, but my feelings of my educational process there was these are things that can come up in winemaking and here are some navigational tools 
Um, so if you experience problems in the cellar or how you can combat things, it's not, it, it's not a here's the recipe for making wine so much as here are tools in your toolbox for when you enter the world. Um, so having worked in a winery, seeing what presses, I mean, learning out presses and pumps from a, <laughs> in a classroom doesn't work. <laughs> it wouldn't have worked for me, but I got to see it all in person first and then come back and then finish out my degree. So being in microbiology of wine, like all of a sudden you're like, okay, I'm getting all of this. Mm -hmm. I've, I've made all the yeast cultures. I've gone through the malolactic bacteria. Like I understand the like basic process of winemaking. Um, you know, so, so you're doing it all on paper in school and then to finally enter the real world of winemaking. And I learned infinitely more once I finally took a full-time job and worked around the world. And then you start making your day-to-day -day decisions and none of that was taught to us. And, and that wasn't, for me, that's not how, how their program is. Um, which is, I think, kind of cool to have a bunch of tools. And then when you actually are in your functioning job, you're still learning so much. I mean, which can be said for a lot of jobs, but this one in particular, I feel like we're constantly evolving. Mm -hmm. So tell me about your experience with that first harvest, that one that kind of in between school harvest, or in between vintage. <laughs> what, what, what was your role and what was the, what, what, did you, what did you take away? What were the biggest takeaways for you? Yeah, so, um, there were a lot of interns. I think there, were, there probably was like 15 to 20 of us. I could be lying. Maybe there was 10. I don't know. I was young. I was, I was 20 years old. I turned 21 in the middle of my harvest. Um, I had way too much fun. Drank way too much alcohol. But we, you know, it was, I think uh, my biggest takeaway from that is like how familial wine is. I made friends there that ultimately took me to Portugal. I married one of them. <laughs> you know, there are these lifelong friendships that we've had and, and where it's taken me in my career path. Um, so the familial portion of it, I think is my, like my biggest remembrance. I mean, I went back to Cake Bread for a second vintage just because I loved the crew that worked there. I loved the winemakers. It was, a beautifully run operation, but it's also like where my foundation of like cleanliness and how important it is to keep your facility clean, your barrels clean, your pumps, your lines, like all of that was so dialed and they're a pretty big production. Mm -hmm. And it was seeing the quality of wine that was coming out in a, in a facility of that size, like that's some very dialed winemaking and some very dialed, um, cruise so that was just that was a really magical experience for me it was obviously a lot of cabernet but the the grape that actually got me was their tiny little pinot noir production <laughs> and i was like oh this is a this is a really cool grape and I, you know i'm from up here which is pinot country but that wasn't the reason i you know i wasn't like oh i can go back up to oregon and make that i I just saw it and I'm like, these go into smaller fermenters. It's more of like this like gentle hand punching everything. There's just like so much work and caressing into this variety. This is a cool thing. Like, I want to do this. So was it, 
you mentioned kind of the, the the first class you took opening up the kind of the wine world to you at, at that point at what point did you start thinking about this being a career about this being the path you wanted to take you know honestly like coming out of my first vintage you know i i, I loved i mean the work was so hard. I mean, anybody who's ever worked a harvest, you just work so many hours and it's so long. And it's California, so it's even longer because it starts in August. And I just loved it. I love that you're working side by side with all these people and you create these awesome, you know, it's just like all these inside jokes and this fun experience. And it's an experience you experience with I just said experience 5,000 times, but you, just, just those people, like nobody else in the world got to have that moment with us. And we all have that for the rest of our lives. We can all remember that. And I went back to school and I was like, this is rad. Like, I, this is what I want to do. And I don't think that's the case for everybody. Once you work those grueling kind of hours and you realize that's going to be your life for what, the next 50 years? <laughs> that's a lot. Um, and I loved it. And I loved my professors at Davis so much. I mean, I worked for Andy Walker um, for three years while I was there um, in the greenhouses doing grape genetics. And he's like such a wonderful, wonderful human being. And Linda Passan was so amazing. Like, and it, it was such a tiny program. I mean, we were just like these, like bunch of nerds, you know, get together, drink wine, have barbecues. Mm. <laughs> it was, I, it's, I just fell in love with it immediately. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoyed all my classes. I mean, microbiology is really interesting. Organic chemistry is a pain in the butt, but it, when you think about it in just like the world of wine, it, it's, I don't know, it just really captured me. Mm -hmm. And so for you, was it, was winemaking the, the kind of the path you, you, you were, you foresaw from the beginning? Yeah. I mean, viticulture is amazing, but that wasn't what was grabbing me. I love walking the vineyards. I love being out here, um, but the winery is where I want to be. Um, you know, it's where I want to spend the there are other people that make better decisions probably than me in the vineyards. <laughs> so take me through what happens next after, after UC Davis. Yeah, so um, I graduated in 08. I went back to Cake Bread for another vintage. Um, I had one course still to take at Davis because of my, my junior year quarter off. So they weren't super flexible with me. I commuted back once a week to uh, finish that course. Got another go around with cake bread. Um, and I, everybody had been to New Zealand. New Zealand seemed like a cool country to go to. It was like great. A uh, couple of girls that I graduated with had also gotten jobs in the same area. So we all boogied down to New Zealand together. Um, worked for a huge production facility down there. But within that, they had um, smaller brands, so Jules Taylor had her production there and a company called Astrolab. So I was able to do Pinot Noir. I, unfortunately, I would have loved to have been in Central Otago, but uh, I was way too late applying for any of those jobs. <laughs> um, but it was good for me to go see like what, a company that's really cranking out um, a huge amount of Sauvignon Blanc, but also like a much bigger production in Pinot Noir than I had seen before. Um, and just to see how those guys were running everything was really interesting. Again, I worked with folks from Chile and 
um, Argentina, Italy, and France. You know, you just make all of these wonderful friendships. England, you know, and he went back and made sparkling wine, just kind of see where everybody's gone. Um, so that was a really, really fun experience. Um, New Zealand's an amazing country. I would happily go back. And from there, I, that would have been in 2009. So I went to Portugal after that. I had, in the 06 harvest, there had been a couple Portuguese guys that had come over and worked. I stayed in contact um, with one of them and his older brother was a winemaker at this facility in the Alentejo region, which is the south of Portugal. So I went over there to a small town where nobody spoke English. <laughs> there were no grocery stores. <laughs> there was nothing, there was a tiny little bar, and, you know, you get your coffees. Um, but I, it was a very, very small, small crew. There was um, I think maybe four of us. Again, not a lot of English. I don't speak a word of Portuguese. <laughs> um, but it was amazing, I mean, we, I think, in the United States are so used to having these wineries that are, like, really equipped. Mm -hmm. um, and that wasn't the case at all. You know, I mean, we were running water over tanks to try to cool them down. So it was a very, very different winemaking experience for me. Um, and grew, I mean, 16 plus hour days, seven days a week. You were not paid hourly. <laughs> uh, and I loved every second of it. I mean, it was just, like, such a beautiful country. and. The people were so amazing, and there's so much culture and history, um, and wines that I'd never had before. I mean, and we don't see them here. You know, it's it was it was a lot of fun, and really, really tested my lab work uh, in some very old school equipment. <laughs> <laughs> so thank goodness for Davis. <laughs> So at this point, you'd had experiences in, in Napa and in, in New Zealand, and in, or at least California and New Zealand, and in, in Portugal. What were you kind of developing in terms of what you wanted to do? You mentioned Pinot Noir grabbing you fairly early on. What were you, what were you kind of thinking at this point? What was your kind of like the philosophy behind what you wanted to do? What, you, what, what kind of wine you wanted to make and how you wanted to make it? Yeah, so uh, it definitely solidified, I think, that I really, really wanted to be pretty hands-on and a pretty small production. Um, I, I wasn't interested in, in being in a huge facility. Um, I also, and, and this more actually came about, I came back and worked for Bethel Heights uh, with Ben Castile and obviously wonderful Pinot Noirs there, but also working with the Aromatic Whites. I mean, um, Ben, does a really, really great job with his Chardonnay programs. Um, and that was a good learning experience for me. But I really loved working with with Aromatic Whites. And I, I had worked with them in Portugal, too. Um, so eventually coming back up here and working with Riesling and the Viognier, like, as far as white wines are for, for me, like, that's kind of the path of white wine that I really, really enjoy. Um, Chardonnay is super fun to make because it's a winemaker's grape. And I can play around with that. But the other ones, like, they're going to give you what they're going to give you. Mm -hmm. So you have to let it, you know, just coax it in the right direction. Um, but yeah, Pinot, Pinot still totally grabbed me. I mean, it's what I worked with in New Zealand. 
working with the Portuguese red varieties was a lot of fun because I'd never, <laughs> I've never experienced that and I probably never will again. Um, it was so it was fascinating just to see what those varieties had to offer. Mm -hmm. um, but I still just, I really enjoy drinking Pinot. I still really enjoyed making Pinot. Um, and I, I, I didn't love making it in 15 ton fermenters, but I really enjoy making it in like two ton fermenters. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, I mean, working with Ben up here, I was just like, I want to come back home. Like, I'm pretty done traveling at this point. Um, but I already had Australia lined up. So I went down and experienced that crazy world. Uh, and then it was just like, how can I get myself back to Oregon and back home closer to my family and to the production that I actually want to do? So why Bethel Heights? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, that's all kind of a blur. <laughs> I mean, I, I applied here um, and I applied with Ben and I can't remember where else I applied, but I'm, I, I don't know how I arrived at these companies. <laughs> uh, but I, I interviewed down there and Ben offered me the job and I kind of, I loved that it's just, and, and same with Lynn and Ron here. I mean, they were family-run operations. They're really, really small, um, super tiny workforce. And I'm so glad that I, I took the opportunity to work with Ben and Ted and that whole family. I mean, they have been huge supporters of me and they make truly incredible wines. I mean, it's still some of my favorite mm -hmm. wines in the Valley, for sure. So, though from Oregon, that's your first time working in, or in Oregon wine. Tell me what was different about here than the other places you'd been. Yeah. Um, at the time, well, you know, coming out of Napa and Cape Red, you, you have a lot of resources. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, wineries down there, like, they're showpieces. So, um, we had a lot of, like, built-in things that just made life easier for us you know that that's just the way it operates down there um, and coming up here I think what was different is well and it, it's Pinot too so you're just you're not you're not um, so much of it is on my hand right like you have tiny little fermenters that you're moving with pallet jacks. You're hand punching down everything. But also, like, we don't all have heated and cooled glycol. Like, we don't have some of the gimmicks mm -hmm. that I, I had gotten used to in California. And that, that's fine. It was just like, it was a little bit more rustic, I guess, is, is the easiest way to say that. Um, and that was true. You know, I mean, Portugal was super rustic. New Zealand was crazy, <laughs> you know, it was, it was big. And Australia to, to some degree too. I mean, it was funny with Australia, it's like they had the resources and they just didn't want to use them, you know? So it was the, I think my coming out of Australia for me, was just the, uh, you had gone from Napa Valley, which was everything was like super, super clean make sure things are sterile, you know, as sterile as possible. And then you go to Australia and it's like, I oh, just got these tanks in a hole. 
we just kind of mop them with this mop that doesn't really get cleaned. <laughs> you know, it was just like a totally, like, my brain was just like, what are we doing? Like everything that I've learned in school says, this is a bad idea. Uh, like one time I was circulating all of our hoses for pump overs and I was circulating chemicals through them and the cellar master was like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm cleaning because it's the beginning of the day and we need to pump over all these things. Like, no, you can't clean them. We want all that schmutz in there. <laughs> like, that seems like a really bad idea, but I, okay. <laughs> it's like the deep fryer at a, at a, at a greasy spoon right, restaurant. Right, yeah. I'm like, all right, well, I mean, that's not, not what I would do, but it's not my winery, so, you know, we'll continue on that. So, um, that was a long, long tangent, but uh, I think that I found coming back up here is the, like, um, and you know we're we have like an amazingly well-equipped lab and all that, but also there's there are just little gimmicks that I had gotten so used to in California that we don't have, and it took me a second to like let it all go. Like I don't check the do of every single tank that I go to bottle with because we don't have a meter, or you know there's just these like littler things that um, I realize that now I'm okay with it because I know that our winemaking practices are such that I'm not concerned mm -hmm. about um, those things that I was super concerned with in California. So I'm, I'm curious about that. You mentioned working with Pinot Noir and, and also with Chardonnay to, to some extent uh, uh, and how hands-on you're going to be and, and how, um, how much you can impart into them. So I'm curious when you're working at Bethel Heights and you're working with equipment that's a little bit different than what you're expecting. How did you kind of come to the point of feeling confident and feeling comfortable that you were going to be able to make what you wanted to make without maybe some of the gimmicks and tools you were used to? Yeah, well, um, you know, I mean, I was an intern, of course, but Ben has been doing this for so long and he is and his family and they know that vineyard so well and they they know the process so well that just working with him through that whole vintage and just hearing what Ben had to say and like kind of just like stepping back and watching guidance mm -hmm. um, was really, really powerful. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he's a really, really smart guy. He thinks about things a lot. Like he really thinks things through. <laughs> and it wasn't so much that I had a ton of questions as much as you just like kind of watch mm -hmm. somebody like that and um, hope that you can gain as much knowledge as you can. And, and that's the same with Lynn here is like, I, just like a feeder, you know, like for five years, it's like watch and kind of like mm -hmm. read how she's reading a situation. Um, and with that, you just gain and gain and gain. And I can comfortably walk into a situation. And now I feel like with more authority, I'm like, I'm okay with this, or this is what this is how we're going to navigate this. Um, you know, I mean, we're all still learning, <laughs> especially with these changing seasons. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. yeah, I think I, you know, I think Ben just, um, I think just the way he looks at the world mm -hmm. and and uh, winemaking is, um, I really admire his approach. So you mentioned 
here, Pinarash now. Well, what was the what was the step for you? What 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 made you decide to come here? Yeah. Well, I had been in Cal back to California as much as I said I wanted to be in the Pacific Northwest. Um, it was. <laughs> 2010 and it was a really, really crappy time to get a job. Uh, or I guess it was 2011 at that point. Um, so I went back to California. I worked for the Hess Collection for just about five years. And um, my husband and I are both in the industry. He knew that I really wanted to come back up here. We had toyed with the idea of, of maybe trying the Santa Cruz Mountains because um, we could do Pinot there. Mm -hmm. He also was super stoked to come back and, and work. I mean, he doesn't have the same like love for the grape as I do, but, um, and then it, it, I, we just, I just kind of like laid in wait, you know, jobs up here are few and far between. And and Ben reached out to me and was like, listen, Penner Ash is looking for an assistant winemaker. I think you should reach out to Lynn. And so I did. Um, I just hoped for the best and, when I got that phone call saying, like, we're offering you the job, you know, I'm, I just remember texting Hans and being like, are we ready? Like, are, you got to quit your job. We're moving. <laughs> <laughs> like, we're going to do this. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just like, you just, you hope for the best with those kind of applications. And I thought my interviews went pretty well, but I had no idea. and. It was just like such a shock and so wonderful when Lynn offered me this mm -hmm. position. I, working for this company, working for her, and being back up here was like, I finally like landed where I wanted mm -hmm. to be. I'm curious about that process. Uh, uh, you had been, you had worked a lot of different places, obviously a lot of, a lot of internships and, and jobs here and there. What was the process like for, for coming here? What was, how, how many interviews, what did you have to do? Yeah, I, you know, I, f I felt like it was like kind of a long shot for me when I applied for this because I had been out of the Pinot world and really big into the Cabernet and, and Chardonnay world. And I was working for a big, a big place. And mm -hmm. I was, I was not making a ton of tiny little <laughs> 250 case lots. Um, so yes, yeah, so I had a phone interview with Lynn and, um, I'm sure I was super awkward, but uh, but she invited me up. <laughs> so I flew up, um, you know, at one point I met with her and Ron. Um, she loves to tell the story that I, I came up to the property. I'd come up for a friend's wedding. It all kind of like simultaneously worked together. And I came up for a friend's wedding and I didn't have a car, so my mom drove me out here. <laughs> uh, I can't believe I'm telling this story on camera. So my mom drove me out to the property, um, and she just stayed in the parking lot. She's like, I'll just read my book, it'll be fine. Like, you know, cause she thought, oh, I'll come in for an interview for an hour or whatever, and we'll just go get some lunch afterwards. I'll go through the interview, and the, we're kind of reaching the end, and Lynn and Ron are like, so, um, like, we'd love to take you to lunch. I was like, fuck, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was like, how am I going to, like, explain the whole mom thing? <laughs> so I was like, yeah, that's great. I would love to have lunch with you guys. I just, I just need you to tell my mom that we're going to go to lunch. <laughs> it's so embarrassing, so embarrassing. And they're so wonderful. And they're like, oh, just invite her along. And I'm like, oh, my God, okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> so Lauren, who's her assistant winemaker now, and at the time Nick was our cellar master, we all went to lunch together with my mom. Um, you know, which like already was pretty embarrassing. Uh, <laughs> and it was like a totally fine lunch. I was super duper nervous. And my mom was nervous. Um, but like making nice, like small chat. My my whole family lived over in Sisters and Lynn and Ron, you know, have a place in Bend. And we talked about like camping when we were growing up and, you know, blah, blah, blah. We had lots of like mm -hmm. things to chat about. And, and we, <laughs> we left lunch. And uh, we were at the bistro, and so we, I was like, Mom, <laughs> we need to go get some bubbles across the street in Argyle before we head back to the family. And uh, we land in the parking lot, and my mom just starts bawling. And I'm like, why are you crying? And she's like, I think I just ruined it for you. <laughs> She's like, I'm so sorry. I just, I didn't stop talking. And I was like, oh, no, like, you're fine, Mom. You're fine. Like, they're not going to judge my performance on whether or not you didn't stop talking. <laughs> anyway, so uh, miraculously, I got a second interview and I came back up. I rented my own car. <laughs> I drove out here. Um, and at that point, uh, that was super nerve wracking. I, I also, Lynn did this awesome thing, Lynn and Ron. Um, you know, they interviewed me, but then they also had Lauren and Nick interview me. Um, you know, because we were going to be working in close quarters together. So I thought that was really, really cool that mm -hmm. they invited them to the conversation. Mm -hmm. And then we did a big sit down and Lynn, of course, tested me on, um, you know, samples that had issues. And uh, we went through some like oxygen, you know, closure trials, um, which was really, really nerve wracking. But uh, it was a cool system. and. Anyway, so that was my interview process, and Lynn loves to tell that story any chance she can get. So you're welcome, Lynn. <laughs> it's not often you get to interview a candidate's mother along with. Oh, you know? I know. My God, it's so it's so it's so funny. <laughs> that is awesome. Tell me about your first impression of of the place uh, of Pinarash and of the, of the of the people here and of the kind of the facility you were going to be working in. Yeah, you know, I mean, I just have very very vague recollections of when I came here in 2010 to uh, interview for just a harvest position. But then, of course, when I came back here, I don't know that I had actually been back really at all prior to coming up to take this role. And you know, every time I come up this hill and then you see this it doesn't matter it's it happened the very first time and it happens every single time afterwards you crest the hill you come up through the gate you see the mountains you know for us when we come in in the mornings like you see the sunrise it's magical it's amazing i walk these vineyards with my dog all the time um it's like home i you know i mean i i do i feel totally at home i think it's important thing about our entire crew here is that like this is like a, this is ours, and we very much, you have, we have so much ownership mm -hmm. in it. Um, there's a sense of calm when I come up here, and, and especially during harvest when you're in the midst of like craziness, and you come up here and it's cool and it's the sun is shining. You're about ready to start your day and get the interns going, and you're just like, oh, this feels amazing. So I'm going to have my cup of coffee and my sense of calm, and then things are going to 
go off. Mm -hmm. And it's the same at night when we start seeing the sun go down and the moon rise. And we kind of all come down here and we take a deep breath. And you're just kind of like, this is the end of the day. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's a special place. Mm -hmm. It's a really special place. And a lot of really awesome memories have been made here yeah. for me. Tell me about your initial role here at Sister Winemaker. What, what was your role when you were hired and how has, it, how has that evolved since? Yeah, um, you know, JFW, Jackson family had purchased the winery and the property kind of right as I had been offered the position. I mean, I, it all kind of coincided at the same time. Um, so I came up as associate winemaker with the knowledge that I would be working very in line with Lynn and then ultimately probably take the project over. Um, so it was like, I mean, my first harvest, I came in in May. We have a super intense blending program here. I mean, we, we go through every single barrel and then it needs to be put into its home of Potanome or the single vineyard or the Willamette Valley. And sometimes the barrel goes into all three directions. So I didn't realize when I first came up here, you know, she, she offered me the position. She's like, can you be here? I don't know, May 1st. I was like, I just, I'm like, I'm five years into this other job. Like I, I loved my boss so much in my, my past job. And I was like, I just feel like I gotta give him like a month. Like I gotta get everything ready and set before I just exit this place. And she's like, okay, but when you get here, we're hitting the ground running. And I was like, okay, okay. You know, I didn't know. <laughs> and then I came and it was just like, boom, we need to make 20 blends by August or whatever it was. And I was like, oh my God, this is so insane. <laughs> like we're at work at, you know, 6.30 or seven o'clock every morning and we're leaving work at 5.30 every night, and, you know, or 6.30. And I mean, we were just like, you're just like constantly sampling and blending and tasting. Um, so that was like, wow, we're, you know, this is a quick learning curve. And then, you know, once we get through all of that, it's like, okay, now I'm gonna introduce you to the 20 different vineyards that we source from. And we're just bebopping all over the valley. And I'm like, I have no idea where I am. <laughs> you know, each vineyard's got five blocks in it that we're sourcing from. Like, how am I possibly keeping any of this straight? The learning curve, it was just like so steep and, and awesome too. I mean, Lynn and I just like, we cruised around everywhere. We got to know each other so much more during that time. Um, and I thought, oh my God, I'm never gonna like keep all of this straight. Like, and then, and then it comes into the winery and they're all in one or two ton fermenters. And I'm looking at the ground and I'm like, there's 120 tanks down here. And like, what, am I gonna screw this all up? Like, is that, what, is that what I'm gonna do right now, right? And of course, Lynn's by my side this whole time. And never, um, I appreciate this so much. She never was like, this is how we do things. This is, it was always, this is what I would do. What would you do? Or she always crafted it in such a way that it was never a, like a telling. It was like, let's get to this conclusion together that makes us both feel super comfortable. Um, which I really, really appreciated. Uh, and it was never like, I've never been daunted or scared. You know, it was always like, we're a partnership. Um, so my first harvest was a total like, just blur, just a total blur. And then 
I knew how the system worked. And so as we progressed into the 16s and tasting and blending, we could get my, our rhythm. And Lauren and I, I hope she feels this way too, I think we work really, really well together um, and, I, and support each other super well. Um, and then of course, you know, you roll into the 17 vintage and all of a sudden I'm like, I know these vineyards and I know all these blocks and I'm starting to get a grip of like, fortunately Lynn and I, I think our palates like uh, are very good together. Mm -hmm. So like when we're grape sampling and tasting through, coming to like picking decisions is pretty easy. We're, we're usually like pretty on par with each other and, and Lauren too. I mean, it's kind of the beauty of all of us constantly tasting is that we can play off of each other um, you know hopefully you don't get too much of a house palette but yeah so you know I just I I kind of just Lynn kept letting me grow and grow and grow and um, she felt comfortable you know saying like you got this <laughs> she's of course still here and supportive um, every year you know we still go to all the vineyards together and taste through everything together but I I feel very, very comfortable on my own now mm -hmm. to, to make a lot of these decisions. So it's been a really, it's been almost five years, which is, just blows my mind that it's been <laughs> almost five years already. Um, but I think we both feel super comfortable where we are. And I, and you know, it allows her to spend some time relaxing. It's a big responsibility taking over the, 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 the label with somebody else's name on it. Yeah. From them. Tell, yeah. Tell me about that for yourself and, and that confidence and, and ability. I, yeah, no, it's like, when you say it like that, it's like super terrifying. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Let me back up and try this again. But I think because of how her and I evolved in this thing together, um, and since then we've started a Chardonnay program here and we found new vineyards, and those are things that we did together. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of pre-existing. And of course, I'm taking a brand that has her name on it, but it doesn't scare me anymore. Um, I feel very confident that we have a really, really strong team here. Mm -hmm. um, and we're really hard on ourselves. So I, I think that allows us to like successfully continue making the wines that have always been made here. You mentioned having having palettes that, that were fairly similar, worked work fairly well together. I'm curious, since since you've had more control, have you noticed anything changing in, in the either the process or the or the finished products here? I wouldn't say like there's a ton of things. I mean, I have I've definitely brought in different barrels. Um, I've adjusted our barrel program a little bit, and that's not because I didn't like barrels that already existed here, but I think more in a response to the fact that we just have warmer growing seasons um, and the grapes are giving up more color, more structure, more everything than um, perhaps they did in the past. Mm -hmm. So I have, I like to bring in a couple new coopers in a very small percentage, um, just to trial every couple years, just because you kind of got to do that anyway. Um, and some of the like tried and trues just like don't work as well. So a little bit of changing in that. Um, I also think that my knowledge of the vineyards increases quite a bit every single year, of course. So my cap management, I myself needed to find that uh, through trial and error. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I, I feel like I'm hopefully getting that a little bit more dialed, especially with, the, you know, depending on the growing season and all of that. So there's just a few things that 
I needed to troubleshoot and learn. Um, but I'm not trying to make a wine that's different than in than what has always been Penarash. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to learn to deal with the growing season mm -hmm. and what we have. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's true for all of us. You mentioned the vineyards, a, a lot of different vineyards, different different AVAs all, all, all over the place, and, and, a, and a steep learning curve, as you mentioned as well. Tell me about that for yourself and, and the, the, the getting comfortable and familiar with the different vineyard blocks. Do you treat do you treat the vineyards differently? Do you treat the grapes differently from the different vineyards? How have you kind of managed that that part of things? Yeah, so we uh, we source from six of the sub AVAs. This is quite a bit, um, <laughs> and yeah, they're they are each treated as their own. You know, the, each vineyard's its own little beast. Um, as far as you know, in the vineyards, yeah, of course, there's like considerations of what sub-AVA you're in, what program it's going to, all of those sort of thinning decisions, um, what the season looks like. So we'll, we'll walk all the vineyards quite a bit. Um, we also have a team that helps us, so that's, that's great. Um, and then as far as when they come into the winery, it's not so much that I treat each vineyard like differently. I mean, there is a lot of similarities, but of course, your oak profiles, there's certain yeast strains that work better mm -hmm. with some. Um, some vineyards happen to do well with whole cluster, others absolutely not. Um, and that's just, again, like a lot of me just kind of learning things, learning it from Lynn, but also, you know, it turns out that some things don't like wood fermenters. That's a terrible idea. We did it. <laughs> We don't need to do it again. And I loved that about Lynn. I mean, we have vineyards, you're only bringing in 10 tons. That's not a lot. Mm -hmm. So to sacrifice, quote unquote, sacrifice three and a half to an oak fermenter, it turns out that was a bad, like that's kind of a scary, it's a scary thing to decide to do. Like I might risk 30% of this whole program by doing this, but she's like, you gotta do it. Mm -hmm. Like we ha just do it. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And I think that like, yeah, has a really bold move. Um, but I appreciate that she gives us that opportunity and she has ingrained that in all of us. Like, yeah, you're right, it might not work or it might be an awesome decision. And we all learned. <laughs> you talked about your, your arrival here kind of coinciding with the, the sale to Jackson family. And of course, at the, at the time, that was a very big deal here in Oregon. Yeah. Um, I'm curious about your kind of memories and feelings from going through that and, and reactions you may have had from, from people around in the area as, as Jackson Company was making its entry into Oregon. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, was, I was raised up here, but I was not raised in wine country. And um, so I didn't know a ton of people when I came back up here. My husband did not come up for the first three months, so I was kind of by myself, so I was doing these like... You know, I'd go to little wine things and um, they would learn that I had come up from California and I was like, ah, oh, California infiltrating. You know, it was like, I mean, I, I distinctly remember being like put in corner, like people like cornering me and like kind of attacking me. And I'm like, I, I'm not from California. <laughs> I was born and raised up here, I'm like fourth generation. But also like they made a decision um, and I don't think we need to be berated for it, and I certainly don't need to be berated for it. And 
And as it turns out, Jackson Family has done an incredible thing. Lots of great things for this community. And, and I understand the, like, the, I got it, you mm -hmm. know, having lived here and you kind of like keep hearing about in particular all these Californians coming up to Oregon like raising up price of living and, and I, I, I understand the terror but it was a little brutal at first mm -hmm. it was it was really brutal um, and and poor Lynn I mean you know you just want to be the face of Penner Ash and her and Ron have done so much for this community that to kind of have that like pretty big pushback was hard and it was really hard for me because I'm like I like I just this, I have nothing to do with this I, I just took a position that was open mm -hmm. um, but that faded pretty fast mm -hmm. and then I think definitely as time has gone on and Jackson family has done their due diligence and and actually pro proved to be good neighbors um, and they've been amazing to us here you know I mean things have gone really well and I and I don't feel that in the community at all anymore. Mm -hmm. it, it dissipated pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. But the, the initial push was like, they brought you up from California. I'm like, no, I was unaffiliated with Jackson family in California. This <laughs> is a coincidence, I swear. Right? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you know, and of course now we've all seen change of hands from other facilities mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. along the way. And I think that, I think it kind of rocked this community at first, especially when you like see some of these like brands that were really staples. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, you know, that's kind of that's evolution. And when Ron did a really great thing, their kids didn't seem interested really in taking over the brand. So why not give their kids access to do other things that they really really want to do mm -hmm. and I don't know. I, it, it was a decision that made sense to me. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Jackson family taking good care of you since. I, I'm curious about sort of the log logistically for you, um, being the winemaker on site here, having have, being in charge and yet not totally being in charge. How does the communication work for you? How, how are the decisions made and what do you have to, what are you kind of charged with doing on your own and what do you have to look for guidance on? Yeah, um, I'm speaking just for Panarash, uh I don't have to look for guidance on much. I mean, of course you have a team that is, these, these are the case quantities we want of, of each item. We want you to start making Chardonnay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, let's go with Chardonnay as an example. Like, hey, Lynn and Kate, we would really like you guys to launch a Chardonnay program. Like, okay. <laughs> um, Great, we, we'll do it, we'll do it, but we want to get grapes from multiple AVAs, we want to choose the vineyards, I want to choose the barrels, I want to, you know, I, we want to have full direction on where this program goes, and we did. You know, I was like, I want some concrete eggs. Great, mm -hmm. you guys do what you need to do to make the Chardonnay that you're super happy with. Um, so, because this brand is so strong, just, I mean, Lynn and Ron had created such a strong program. We have the huge, you know, our DTC, our wine club. I think you'd have to be silly to come in and disrupt that in any way. Um, so we've had pretty hands off. Like Lynn and I, you know, when we want something, if we scream loud enough, I feel like generally if people listen, <laughs> not always, but, um, I, I don't feel like I need to, I don't, ha I don't have to battle things. Mm -hmm. um, 
I, people generally let us be, um, and we've got a strong team up here in Oregon. I mean, they, you know, they're a marketing team here I absolutely love. They listen to us, you know, which is not always the case, especially coming from winemakers in, in bigger, you know, bigger companies. It's like, they don't want to hear me complain, but they have to. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, I mean, so yeah, so I, I, I get to keep the programs, I get to start programs that I've wanted to start. Um, we updated our lab, so, you know, we got an automated spec, just like things that made life a little easier mm -hmm. for um, those of us that are spending a lot of hours here. <laughs> you said something earlier that kind of stuck with me, and you mentioned all the kind of the memories from here. That you remember. Tell, me, tell me some of your favorite memories or, or, or moments uh, from your time at Pinterest so far. Um, wow, okay, uh, <laughs> I think like less specifically, but um, something that we all kind of joke about, I honeymooned in Alaska and we did this like week long, um, like kind of package thing, right? Mm -hmm. So we like stayed in a lodge and rafted down a river and stayed in blah, blah, blah. Anyway, mm -hmm. uh, this girl that took us down the river we were just kind of chatting you know having a good time she's like what do you guys do and I'm like oh we're both in the wine industry she's like oh what, what is that like what what do you do you know I'm like, oh, we're winemakers and she's like that's awesome and uh it was july and we were like yeah uh she kind of talked about an internship we talked about like how people just travel around like working and she's like oh and she's like you know migratory worker she's does Alaska and then usually like ski resorts and stuff and she's like so can I come <laughs> and I'm like well you seem super capable I like you <laughs> yeah and she's like no but I'm not kidding and I'm like no I'm not either I'm still looking for people and uh she's like fine I'm finding you on Facebook right after this and we were like you know we weren't in cell phone service and when we got back in lo and behold and I'm like oh there's Grace she reached out to me and I was like all right come on board and she brought two of her other co-workers from this, uh, it's called Alaska Wildland, and uh, they were amazing. I mean, we had such, my very first harvest year, we had like, a, every year, it's just like these really awesome crews. Um, so we had these AWA kids, right? And they came and I loved them to death. We had so much fun. Just like, it was three females. We always tried to keep it pretty balanced in the cellar. And um, anyway, from that point on, they've all like brought in more people. So every year we just have this like new set of AWA kids and they're like, they're amazing. I mean, they're such hard workers. They're used to like really gnarly conditions and like genuinely the nicest people I've ever met in my entire life. And so when I think about like memories and harvest. I mean, there's like a million memories and jokes for us upstairs. Like Lynn and Nolan and Lauren and I just like, I mean, we just like text each other all the time, just like at home. I mean, it's just dumb how much we chat. <laughs> but when I think about harvest and just like these warm, fuzzy feelings, it's the AWA kids. I mean, I just like, and we've tracked all of them. Like some of them have come back for round two. Some have come back for round three. And it's always like, what are you doing now? Oh, I'm like leading 
one girl, like a lot of them go to Antarctica. One girl was like, I don't know, doing like boat tours and South America somewhere. I mean, it's just like super <laughs> random stuff. Uh, but we would just like sit out here and like have a fire at night at the end of the day and hang out and have beers and I don't know, they, they were here when Hans and I got married. They were around when Hans and I had our first kid. Like that, they're just kind of our family. Um, and we also all like you know, text each other randomly from time to time. I don't know. So not like specific memories, mm -hmm. but just like really wonderful humans. Mm -hmm. um, Found the most interesting places. Yeah, really interesting places. We've got, hopefully we have this other kid that came from, he's coming from Utah and he's a, a ski bum in the winter time. He's rallying his friends now. I'm like, oh, so this is gonna be our new. <laughs> <laughs> this is our new source. <laughs> gotta do something till the snow falls. That's right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> So, yeah, no, just like, I think those, it's not, yeah, not specifics as much as just these like wonderful, like such wonderful times in life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So on a different track of the most wonderful times in life, I want to talk about 2020 a little bit. Mm. <laughs> oh, and, and kind of the, the dueling narratives of 2020 for wine country. So I'd like to start with the, with the pandemic and, and sort of um, your memories of the early response to it and sort of how it affected your wine life and, and, and sort of the industry in general from your perspective. Yeah, um, yeah, mad props to the team here. Uh, you know, I was on maternity leave. I, as mentioned earlier, was supposed to return and boom, uh, we all went into lockdown mode. Um, so wow, we had to shift gears real fast. Um, you know, it, was, it meant pushing back bottling until we could figure out how we can safely get everybody on a bottling truck uh, to get that wine into bottle. And then, of course, our blending season. So um, we pushed our bottling date by a month. We reassessed how we were going to approach that. Um, since JFW is located out of California, they were a little ahead of the curve, I think, as far as like instantly we're wearing masks, we're doing social distancing, you know, you're gonna stay at home as mm -hmm. much as possible. Mm -hmm. um, so we were able to figure out how to put wine into a bottle pretty safely. Um, we of course haven't traveled for over a year now. Um, and then blending season was super fun. So uh, we have an amazing amount of test tubes just how we did everything so we would uh go down and lauren and i could sample out all three of us could sample the cellar uh there's three different bays so we could each stay apart from each other we would sample as many barrels as we thought we would taste that day um i would take my set home nolan would take his set home lynn would get hers and lauren would take hers and we team sessioned the crap out of blending season, uh, which was crazy. I mean, it's such a weird way to taste, but we did it um, and we got through it and we would come back in, you know, either that afternoon or the next morning, try to quickly make blends again, divvy them up and then shoot back home to do all of our meetings. Um, yeah, so that, I mean, that, that was, all of May, June, July, and then 
uh, in preparation for harvest, you know, we we had to think about how we're bringing eight people into this facility. Mm. Um, at that point, we had completely shut off half of the building where production was no longer allowed to go because front of house was seeing outside visitors. So we stopped going into the kitchen. We stopped sharing bathrooms. We stopped walking through the tasting room. We shut down the break room. I mean, it was, it was, it was, we had to shield the production because the last thing I wanted was a floor full of tanks and to be completely shut down and locked out of this building for two days. Um, so when interns came in and we COVID tested everybody, they all volunteered to do it. So we felt pretty confident that we were starting with a blank slate. We brought everybody in early enough to get us through both of our bottling runs. So the quote unquote Penarash staff just moved in a pod. I put four of them in a house together. I bribed everybody with like three cases of wine and said, please don't go to a bar or go shopping. <sighs> you know, it's like, and, I, and I was so, you know, it just sat everybody down. I was like, listen, this is how many dollars is on the floor. If, uh, if we're at the peak of harvest and we get shut down, just like mentally put that amount of money in your brain and then tell yourself each time you make a decision, is this the thing I should be doing right now? I, there was just, I like, I needed to like, this is our livelihood. The biggest tear for all of us was to lose any sense of taste and smell. I mean, I'm not, I wasn't that worried about dying. I felt like I was pretty healthy, but like, what do I do if I can't smell and taste? Mm -hmm. um, so we had a really rad team. It was a bunch of those AWA kids that we'd already had. So they already knew the drill. They were totally cool. Just hanging at their house out on the, we put them up in one of our vineyards. Um, and everybody else had their own little units and they just stayed as safe as possible. So, I mean, we navigated it as best we could. We, we, everybody had single serve lunches. Um, we tried to supply everybody with plenty of snacks to like limit the amount of grocery shopping. You know, as much as I could just keep them here or at home, that's what we were trying to do. And then uh, September 9th hit. <laughs> or whatever day it was and all of that was you know i mean we had done so much to prepare for covid you can't do anything to prepare for fires mm -hmm. um, and those were some brutal decisions mm -hmm. take me take me through that from when the smoke started rolling in to, to what you were kind of prioritized and, and the decisions you had to make yeah unf unfortunately uh the smoke started rolling in and I was due to start bottling the following morning. Um, three days of bottling that needed to get done. We showed up that Tuesday morning and it wasn't terrible, <laughs> but it wasn't great. Um, we also didn't have power, which meant we didn't have water. So it was already off to a bad start, um, but the crew rallied. And we got through that, but then the next day things got significantly worse. And we, of course, had the Shehalem Fire Mountain, or the Shehalem Mountain Fire. And uh, then it was a really, really tough decision of like, I didn't want to put people's health at risk. I also really wanted to get that wine into a bottle. Um, 
there were a lot of mixed reports on what the AQI was, how dangerous everything was. Um, you know, we were already masked up, but we went and got in 95 masks for everybody. And then, and then I just had to do an all call. I mean, we, we sat everybody down individually. Um, and we got together as a big group and collectively decided that we would continue through the run, but then you always wonder if people just won't speak up in a group. So I sat everybody down individually and anybody who didn't feel comfortable um, went home, which mm -hmm. was totally fine. You know, in retrospect, I wish I would have probably shut the whole thing down. I, I think I probably put people through more than they, they should have. Um, Lauren and Nolan are such troopers, and we have such a passion for this place and this making the product that we make that I think we sometimes put ourselves through hell and back to make sure that it's done the best as possible. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, I'm the one that was like the leader, and that was in retrospect, you know, after all that was such a roller coaster ride, and there were so many other decisions that need to be made, and we had so many vineyards that we sourced from. Mm -hmm and the smoke wasn't getting any better and you're on the phone call constantly to anybody I knew in California, like, it's pretty high smoke, I can still see, this is where we're at and ripening, like, how bad do you think it's gonna be? And we were all just kind of like holding on to hope that it wasn't just decimated. Um, so that, yeah, that whole time was, was super hard. Mm -hmm. If I could turn back the clock, I, I would have made some different decisions, but you know, and hopefully we never have to make those decisions again, mm -hmm. at least for a very, very long time. Um, then yeah, I'm sure you want to know about the vineyards. <laughs> uh, you know, we we ran the bucket ferments. We had a sous vide that we were running, just water baths, rapid ferments. Um, we were fortunate to have a lab in California that's our own personal, so they were just cranking out numbers. Um, so obviously California was going through the same exact mm -hmm. issue that we were going through. And that was brutal. I mean, we would taste the wines, you could kind of convince yourself like, oh, maybe it's not so bad. Um, you know, I'm picking up a little bit on the back palate, but I'm not sure about aromatically. And then you got the numbers to back it all up. And it, it was, uh, I didn't have to make those decisions. I mean, I was not the final call on those, and thankfully that I wasn't. I mean, we have a, such a huge history with our growers, and we love them to death, and we've been with some of these folks for over 20 years. So to make the call of whether or not you're gonna bring in grapes, I mean, that that's a huge, that's a huge, huge responsibility, and it was devastating. I mean, Lynn and I were on a roller coaster ride, definitely cried. And it also, you know, I mean, it, I, I didn't bring in any grower fruit this year. Um, my interns, I had some that were only with us for two weeks before we let everybody go. So it was an emotional roller coaster. I mean, I, I don't love asking somebody to travel all the way across the country to then turn around two weeks later and say, sorry, I don't have a job for you. Um, but we just didn't have anything for them to do. Mm -hmm. we, we brought in very, very little fruit. It was just our own properties that are owned by Jackson family. Um, so it was hard. I mean, what I did bring in from our own estate properties, I, I, we won't be producing any Pinot Noir in 2020. 
It was brutal. I'm sorry. Yeah. It was, it's, you know, it's our livelihood. And we're all kind of sitting this time of year. Like, this is the time where we start tasting and blending and we're getting busy and we're kind of looking at each other and saying, this is a good year for us to take vacations, but you can't because it's a pandemic. <laughs> um, yeah, so let's not do that again. I'm very much looking forward to the 2021 harvest. Mm -hmm. I, I've never looked forward to something so much. With both of those things, obviously a lot of a lot of lessons learned from the from from the pandemic, a lot of lessons learned from from the smoke and the fires. I'm, I'm curious, for you personally in Pinarash and, and maybe for the industry more in, in general, are there what are the, what are the lessons learned? What what are the takeaways and what are, what are the if any, are the changes you might see coming from those, from those kind of both events happening same year? Yeah, you know, I mean that, both events happening same year, I just, I can't even think about takeaways because I hope, I hope that we'll never have a pandemic and a lost harvest ever again. I don't think I can emotionally handle it. <laughs> um, as far as the relationships and choosing not to harvest, I think that I get the feeling from my California counterparts that because they've had to make that decision sometimes, you know, it's like four years running now, that they have kind of created a standard and it's like if it's, you know, above this, we're just not doing it. Um, I think that for us up here, our relationships are unique and our brand very much depends on these. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a very, very clear line for Lynn and I, was that we need to take care of these people because they take care of us. Mm -hmm. um, and I, everybody always says that Oregon is unique and we have these like handshake agreements and it's the truth. It's what I love being back up here. I mean, we are such a friendly neighborhood and winemakers, I mean, that was, during harvest of 2020, I was constantly on the phone with other winemakers, like, what do you guys see? Because they knew that we had labs and that we were getting readings. And I was happy to divulge that information, um, you know, not from this specific vineyard, but like, this is what I'm seeing in general. Um, what was your question again? Takeaways. <laughs> Takeaways, yes. So, uh, I think, I think for us, we needed to find a better um, balance of how we deal with our relationships up here. It can't be the California model. Um, that that was very very clear mm -hmm. for me and for Lynn. Um, and unfortunately, you know, I mean, crop insurance is great, but it's not perfect. Um, it also doesn't seem to be purchased a lot up here for better or for worse. And I understand that from like a history of not really being covered for weather events. But I think that we would all be in denial if we didn't think that this is something that could happen again, mm -hmm. unfortunately. I mean, I really hope it doesn't, at least not with great frequency. But the reality is, is that the, the climate is changing. Um, I don't think crop insurance is the answer, but it, at least it helps mitigate some stuff. But, um, you know, it, it kind of sucks to talk about contracts, but contracts can provide a 
very clear understanding of what happens. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I don't have a good answer. I mean, my answer is like in a perfect world, you just pay for the grapes. <laughs> but we both have to take the risk, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I don't have, I don't have, there's not a good way of walking out of this. Mm -hmm. there's, it's a lose-lose for everybody. Mm -hmm. So we talked earlier about your first impressions of Oregon wine and, and about it's being kind of rustic compared to perhaps some other regions. Uh, I'm curious uh, in your mind uh, if that's changed since you, since you first started working in Oregon wine and, and what the industry looks like now compared to when you started. I don't think it's so much that it's like changed in leaps and bounds since I started here anyway. Um, I think w tourism has just gone gangbusters. You know, I mean, even being here in 2010, like, you know, people would still close their tasting rooms during the winter, right? I mean, it was just such a different time. And so I don't remember what the statistic is, but I feel like we have seen like a 30% increase like yearly or something crazy. Um, so I think that like, I think the amount of money pouring into the valley is uh, changing. I think that on a global scale, we are very much in a spotlight, which is awesome. I mean, thanks to all the original folks just like constantly pounding the pavement and, and getting Willamette Valley on the map. Um, and I think with that, you've now started to see the shift of, you know, tasting rooms are getting fancier, uh, wineries are becoming less of just like a box and more of a showpiece. I mean, arguably ours already is, you know, we were built to show. Um, and I think like, hopefully, I like to think anyway, that revenue has also increased so that people can pour a little bit more into their sellers mm -hmm. and you know there are tools out there that make our lives easier and i think that like that's starting to really like we now have the money that we can funnel towards getting a fully automated spec so that somebody's not sitting over a spec just hand pipetting all day long because it turns out it pays for itself really fast but also twenty five thousand dollars is a lot to spend you know in one you know so i think I think from like a production side, and I also just think, and this is not new at all, but I think that the quality of wine is just constantly like up and up and up. And I don't think that that has anything to do with like new fancy winemakers or anything. I think it's just, there's a lot of attention paid to making the product. Um, there's a lot of really good winemakers up here and there's a ton of families that have a long history and I think they're like really dialing in what they're doing. Um, so yeah, it's kind of, I guess, I guess just looking, you know, as a kid growing up and I have like the fuzziest, foggiest memories of like being in wine country with my parents. Like it, you're still like kind of cruising around back roads and I love that, but now it's starting to feel like there's definitely more tourism mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for better or for worse. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> Maybe both at the same time. Maybe both at the same time, yep. Um, so, what about as you look ahead for Oregon wine? What, what is coming next for the industry, especially coming out of the pandemic? Are, are, are there changes from the pandemic that you, that you foresee sticking around? And, and what is the industry going to look like in the coming years? Um, I think 
Personally, lessons from the pandemic. Um, I think we're all still pretty wary as a staff here, so I think that we're going to proceed with caution. Um, you know, there's definitely not going to be any limits on mask wearing and um, still keeping it like we're still not tasting or anything. You know, we're all vaccinated now, but it's not like we're tasting together in the lab at this point. I do hope that we'll come back to that world. Um, but wasn't it kind of nice that like nobody got the flu this year? Uh, so I think that there's some takeaways of like, oh, when you go to the grocery store, maybe we continue to mask up. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know how this is all going to shake out, but I think there are some changes that we have all, and I, I think that we're all like, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but like I watch TV shows and I'm like, you guys are all too close together and nobody's wearing, you know I mean? Like, it's just so in my brain now to pull back out of this. I have a kid that's 15 months old and he's like never been in public. Mm -hmm. So to pull back out of this and start socializing again, I think it's going to be a little bit different, a little bit weird. And then I'm sure eventually we'll kind of get, um, as far as like this harvest, we're going into it. In my mind, we're going into it. There's very much a pandemic happening. Mm -hmm. um, I don't care that we're all fully vaccinated. Like we will be masking up and protecting ourselves. Um, I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens in the, not just Oregon, but up and down the West Coast. I think there will be very little produced in 2020. I think we all scaled back our numbers because of a pandemic in 2019. So I think we're all gunning for 2021 mm -hmm. um, and trying to make up some numbers. It could be totally wrong on all those fronts, but I will be, It'll be really interesting to see what the market looks like when the 2021 vintage is over and everybody knows what their gallons are and what their hopefully their run rates. I mean, you know, as restaurants start opening back up and we see the pace starting to pick back up, we're all throwing a dart at a target that we <laughs> hope we're hitting. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's just so many unknowns. And then, you know, I, there's you talk about restaurants and stuff closing like i don't know what the state of wineries are or growers you know if you're not producing a lot in 2020 or you weren't able to sell you know i, I don't know what the ultimate repercussions mm -hmm. will be from all of this mm -hmm. and i hope that there's not a ton i, I hope that everybody survived the storm what about for yourself as you look ahead, the future for yourself and the future for, for Pinner Ash? What, what's, what, what are you kind of looking forward to down the road? Are, are there projects on the horizon or new, new challenges or yeah. what, what's next? I think that um, we have several new vineyard sources coming in this year. So I'm pretty excited to see where those go. Um, maybe some new single vineyards will hit the map. I don't know. I mean, we want to see what these all shake out like um so i'm really excited i think i've got five new vineyards coming in i'm very excited to play with those um i am just i think you know we we were purchased and we kind of like and now we're like settling back into our comfort zone mm -hmm. um 
I'm really excited about our new expansion. We got a new winery addition happening that is not increasing our capacity, but it is giving us some space to breathe. Uh, we were really cramming ourselves in, uh, which was great when I was seven months pregnant, trying to <laughs> squeeze between tanks. Um, so I think just like, for me, it's like, okay, a lot of things have happened in the last year and beyond that. And let's like all take a deep breath and let's just kind of, let's take this year to really get our affairs in order, make sure we're walking into this harvest, like cool, calm, collected, and the most organized we've ever been because we have zero excuse to not be super organized. <laughs> um, and like, just like, let's make some really awesome wine and uh, hopefully everything goes really, really well, mm -hmm. you know? I, I don't have like a vision beyond that. I just like, I'm so excited to have a winery that's full of wine again. <laughs> um, you know, and we yeah, this new vineyard sources where we don't have any like other like huge projects happening at the moment. It's still working through our Chardonnay program and kind of figuring that out. Um, I don't have any new toys right now that are on my you know, in my sights, mm -hmm. but I'm sure I could find a few. Um, yeah, and I, and, I, and I honestly, like, it's been really nice not being on the road, but I'm kind of looking forward to getting back out there and not Zoom calling, uh, you know, country clubs in Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be great to see people <laughs> and actually talk about the wine in person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> It's an interesting part of your job we haven't really talked about, the, the, but the sale, the travel, and the sales part of, of winemaking, uh, in in the in the in the in the before days, and hopefully in the after days of, of travel and, and sales. Tell me about growing into that role for yourself, and and what what about it you have enjoyed, and, and what about it uh, you're have, yeah. have less enjoyed, perhaps. I haven't done a ton here at Penarash, um, you know. They mostly, Lynn was hitting the ground. I, I know I did like local stuff, but I was rarely working the market in any big way. Um, and we just, in general, we weren't, we weren't out, she wasn't out in the market a whole ton either. Um, she did do, get to do a European tour though, and I, I was pretty jealous about that, so I could, I could jump onto that. Um, but I had done I had done quite a bit of traveling for Hess. By the time I left them, they were putting me on the road a lot, you know, which is both a blessing and a curse. Um, it's so easy for for me to talk about the wines here. Like it's I have such a passion and love for them. It's it's really easy to go out there. People are super nice and very engaging about the wines and it's generally a really positive response so it makes me feel warm and fuzzy when I'm on the road um, but yeah I just haven't I I haven't done a ton since I've been here um, but I am ready to get back out and mm -hmm. start again so if someone were to, were to come to you and ask for your words of wisdom on, on getting into the wine industry what, what would you tell them you know, I've had several people approach me that, um, like a little bit later, I've just like, hey, you know what, winemaking is kind of cool. I've worked my first harvest, or I've worked in the tasting room, or, you know, both. And do you think I should go back to school? Would that help me in my career? 
Um, and sometimes those people have worked like a pretty decent amount of time in a cellar. Um, and for those folks, like I don't think that you need to go back to school. I think school was super valuable for me. Um, I always, my husband didn't go through a winemaking program, but he did get a biology degree. And I think if you have a science background, that is super duper valuable. And you can take that and then with experience, you have a very, very strong um, ability. Mm -hmm. I think that you can make it as far as anybody else in the industry. I do think that we are hitting a point where there are enough wine programs in this country that are cranking out enough kids that it's becoming very competitive. And that might give you the like hands up um, or leg up. Uh, so I guess what I'm saying is, I don't think that you need a degree. I do think having a science background is pretty important. I think for me, getting into the enology position um, as an enologist early on was very valuable for my quick escalation. Um, and I, and I, I think that's common. You know, I think that you, once you're an enologist, going into an assistant winemaker seems like to make a lot of sense. But if you're in the cellar going to an assistant winemaker, unless you're at a really, really small facility where there is no enologist, that is a di more difficult ladder. Um, and I, I think I graduated, be I think I was a little bit rarer than some because I did my undergraduate in V&E, so I came out of school at, what, 22, and that uh, gave me this awesome ability to travel before I needed to, you know, health insurance and needed to, like, get a real job. Um, <laughs> So I think for me, I think the traveling was invaluable. I mean, I got to see a lot of different places, wine made in a lot of different styles. Um, you had very, very sophisticated, you know, like I said, fancy toys, beautiful tanks, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, a little more rustic, but completely functional and all the right things, but just in a visually more rustic environment. Mm -hmm. um, and that, I think, just shaping me as a human, that was like a really important thing. I think I learned the most about winemaking in my full-time jobs. I mean, I learned a ton when I was at Hess. I took on a lot of programs and then came up here. And of course, primarily Pinot Noir, but then a vast number of vineyards and sub-AVAs. So it was just like, just knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. <laughs> I think seeing a lot of different facilities is really good for a person mm -hmm. and how they, how people do things. It really, sh it really structures how like I want things to look and operate. Um, and also like as annoying as my cellar master can be, uh, no, I love him to death, but he like, he questions me. You know, he's like, why are we doing this? Why don't we do it this way? And sometimes I'm like, well, this is definitely why we're doing it this way. Sometimes like, I don't know, because I've always done it that way because somebody else I knew did it that way, but try it your way. And if it works just as well, then great. That's mm -hmm. awesome. You know, I mean, I love that he does that. He challenges me and then he goes home and does too much reading. 
comes back with arguments. <laughs> That's just cheating at that point. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> with all the questions that I have for you, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have asked today? Anything we didn't oh, cover? I have no idea. I felt like we covered a lot. Yeah. We did cover a lot. <laughs> well, thank I'm like, did I tell any stories that I shouldn't have told? I, I, everything seemed pretty legit from this end. So. Great. <laughs> I think I was, I was trying to be pretty nice. <laughs> no, I have nothing but love for everybody up here. Well, thank you so much thank for your time, you guys. your hospitality here, for your stories. And, Absolutely. And uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.